You're listening to NYC Radio Live. Great to be with you. David Ellenbogen here, your humble servant. This show is super, super special. I, I got such a kick out of this conversation and learned so much. We're hanging with the author and publicist and historian, Dennis McNally, who spent over a dozen years on, with the Grateful Dead and was kind of became the band's official historian. He also wrote a book called On Highway 61, Tracing the Roots of the Counterculture Back to the Bohemian Movements of the 1840s. And he wrote a book called uh, Desolate Angel, a biography of Jack Kerouac, which became his entree into the world of the Grateful Dead. So, some people are obsessed with the Grateful Dead. Many people have heard a little bit and and couldn't understand their mystique at all. Others are indifferent. But no matter where you fit into that uh, gamut, I'm sure if you have interest in kind of the history, musical history of the the counterculture in the United States, you're going to find this conversation fascinating. I did, upon listening back, realize that there are a few names that we just kind of assumed the listener would know. So I'm just going to quickly kind of run you through a few things uh, because there's a little inside baseball but this story, it, it just, the, the characters involved, I mean, there's the Hells Angels, there's the CIA, there are the Beatniks, there are the Merry Pranksters, there are the Yippies, there are politicians and huge corporations, record companies. Anyway. It, it it all comes together. The Grateful Dead, if nothing else, um, were and are of the times. So, very quickly, we mention Neil Cassidy. He's the main character in Jack Kerouac's On the Road. In that book, he's portrayed as Dean Moriarty. We mentioned Bill Graham, the father of the modern rock concert. We mentioned Jerry Garcia many times as just Jerry. He is the charismatic troubadour. Um, <laughs> on whose shoulders rested an entire countercultural movement that had millions of people. We mentioned Mickey Hart, their drummer, uh, maybe just as Mickey He's an incredible percussionist and ethnomusicologist. Check out Planet Drum, his album and book, and his book, Drumming at the Edge of Magic, if you can. Bill Graham's book is awesome, too. Um, We mentioned Bob Weir. He is their um, other rhythm guitarist and singer who joined the band at the tender age of 15. We mentioned Bill Kreutzmann, who's the other drummer of the band, Maybe we mentioned Pigpen, who was a singer and organ player in the early days. Phil Lesh, we mentioned 
Phil, the bass player, uh, and savant musician. And we mentioned Robert Hunter, the band's lyricist. Other things that just fly by are MK Ultra, the CIA program <laughs> that was experimenting with LSD before it reached the wider population, like in the 50s and early 60s. Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Tests and was behind the Merry Pranksters and the Magic Bus. Anyway, with that, let's just go to this conversation with Dennis McNally. It's a um, pretty wild ride. It, very eye-opening. And hope you enjoy. Peace. Just so people understand the, the access that you had. Jerry, Jerry read Desolate Angel and, and was very impressed. And, and he felt like you were the guy with the tools capable of, of telling their story. Is that kind of accurate? That's uh, that's fair. Uh, you know, I I, I literally I, I wanted to do the book. I didn't know how to how to approach them, and I had this in, intuitive understanding that if I marched up to somehow if I could find them, and you know, it was an unlisted phone number. <laughs> I uh, if I could somehow find them, I would uh, and marched up to them and said, "Hi, I'd like to be your biographer." They'd say, "Sure, take a number." Uh, and I knew that wasn't the way to do it. Um, so I sent a copy of the Kerouac book uh, it, that came out in 1979, a long time ago, and I um, I sent a copy to, uh, to to Jerry through the the Grateful Dead, you know the um, the mailbox, the Deadhead mailbox on the uh, on the records uh, box 1065, San Rafael, California, and uh, he did get it, and uh, I think I did a good job, but a lot of his compliments about the book have to do with the really high place um, that um, Kerouac occupied in his his you know um, his hall of uh, hall of heroes um, he was 16 years old and a, a young art student in North Beach San Francisco in 1958 when on the road was you know still a, a bestseller and um, it it really defined a good chunk of the way he looked at the world for the rest of his life, which was to say that it, it, uh, it gave him a persona and an identity as a, uh, an outside-the-box artist. Um, and it turned out to be a musical artist instead of a painter artist, but that's okay. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, and so then we connected and he liked it a lot and he said, why don't you do us? And I said, good idea. <laughs> ah, very clever. So, um, yeah, I mean, in, in um, yeah, I guess it was 1958 or around then he was already, uh, he had had a um, teacher, um, this guy Wally Hendrick, who was kind of a, an influence on him uh, at the, and that guy kind of got him into the beat, beatnik scene, going to clubs, I mean, going to little, you know, coffee shops and he heard Lawrence Ferlinghetti and and the other guys too um I know the Phil wanted to set Howell to music um so these these guys were all entranced uh, by the by the by the the concept of the beats and then 
and then the the beats actually entered their life. So I was kind of curious about wanting to understand a little more about that. How how Neil Cassidy, um, that that bit, and generally that connection of the the beat to the the hippie dead thing. Um, well, what, what happened I, there? Uh, yeah. Well, I you know, among other things, I'm starting up what will be at least another five years of research on just just that question about the not just the beats per se but the transitions of american bohemian culture from really the late 1940s uh, or the 1940s through to what we came to call the hippie or hate ashbury scene um but the the short of it is at least as far as neil goes was that um in 19 um 58 Neil was uh, arrested uh, for possession of two joints and was put in San Quentin prison for two years, um, which kind of cut him loose from... I mean, he'd had... Even though he wasn't always there, to put it mildly, uh, he'd, you know, he'd had a wife and three children and, and, and uh, um, a job on the railroad and, and you know, had... Uh, supported his family and, you know, do all that, even if he'd had many ladies on the side and, and you know, was constantly going off on adventures. And, uh, but after the, the, um, the arrest, he, it, it altered his life, uh, clearly. Um, and he, he um, s- jumped out on the edge even further. And, uh, in about 1962, I want to say, he met uh, Ken Kesey. Long story. Um, actually, he went to that neighborhood uh, near Stanford to uh, university to uh, to uh, for some business with somebody else, and uh, eventually he met Ken, and they sort of clicked. And of course, he uh, went on to drive the bus and and generally be a a, a partner in crime to uh, to Ken. And so when the Grateful Dead, who were like, you know, at first, when this first happened, they were kids. I mean, they were, you know, um, well, Jerry was in, the, when they first connected in 1962, uh, f- even Phil was like, what, 21. Um, Jerry was like 19 or 20. Um, and they were, uh, they referred to uh, Kesey as Kesey and the Wine Drinkers. You know, they were sort of young Kind of punky. They had. I mean, there was a certain punk quality, um, and Kesey, although uh, clearly um, no conventional personality, was you know a serious. He was a graduate student. He was a serious uh, a future writer and all that. Phil tells a wonderful story about uh, going into his house once and seeing a page of what would become One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on in the typewriter in the process of being written, and. Uh, you know, he read like two paragraphs and went, oh, whoa, <laughs> this dude is heavy. Um, and he was right. Uh, so anyway, they were, they were around. So uh, by 1965, um, they, uh, uh, Kesey uh, has come back from the, big, the Great Bus Ride and, and they're supposedly going to make a movie out of all of it, which uh, was never really meant to be. Um, and he decides that... Uh, Rather than, than uh, be a writer uh, full-time, he is going to try and uh, 
bring the electricity straight down from the heavens. And he started what, what was called, what became called the acid test, in which were these series of parties um, in which everyone would take LSD, simple, uh, and see what would happen. Um, and of course, most people were not yet familiar with what LSD was, so you know, there was a large chunk of the random in, in all of this. Um, and among the people that were at the first acid test were Jerry and Bobby and I'm not sure who else. Maybe Phil? Um, but not the Grateful Dead. Uh, and that was really just a sort of a normal Saturday night gathering at uh, Ken Babs, who was sort of Kesey's number two, two guy in the, in the Pranksters. Um, at Babs's house, which was in Soquel, which is Santa Cruz area. And somehow Allen Ginsberg was there, though, you know, which is amazing. Allen, <laughs> Allen Ginsberg had, for, for 50 years, he had the knack for being in the right place at the right time, no matter <laughs> what was happening. <laughs> it was just remarkable. Um, starting from your, your radio station, that is to say, at Columbia University. That's um, right. Uh, and 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 from there on, I mean, it's just amazing who he met and how he met them and the strange things that that happened. Uh, at any rate, the first gathering was a success, and they said, "Well, you know, let's do this bigger and and not at a home, but you know." And um, they uh, they moved it up, um, and eventually, uh, it, it, and invited the, the Jerry and Bobby to, uh, to bring their instruments the next time. So they bring the band, and that worked really well. And so this goes on for about two months, the, the acid tests, in, in increasingly larger environments in the Bay Area, and one in Portland, uh, Oregon. And um, it crests at the Chips Festival in late January of 1966, in which... They had invited all, you know, sort of the entire realm of avant-garde art um, and, and cutting-edge thinking about that stuff um, in the Bay Area uh, to take place. And there was the open theater and there were various, you know, the mime troupe was there and, and various things like that. Uh, for the luck of the draw, I was going to say unfortunately because I think some of that... Other art was uh, was you know of great value, uh, and and contributed, but in the end, what happened? What, what as Ralph Gleason put it, um, what really you know worked in the Trips Festival was <laughs> the Grateful Dead, a light show in high volume rock and roll, um, and thus began the the uh, the whole. Um, the, the Avalon and the Fillmore and the, and the whole San Francisco rock scene as a as a um, as a phenomenon, and as I say, this was sponsored by Kizzy, the Pranksters, and of course Neil, who was who was of course there, and and um, it there was a handing off of the torch. Uh, Kizzy met Kerouac uh, back in '64 when when the bus had come to New York City. And it didn't go well, mostly because um, it was very loud and psychedelic, and, Ke and Kerouac was, you know, not, <laughs> was not loud, at that point was not loud, was not psychedelic, and was uh, sort of shrinking back into a, 
into a cocoon that you know he would be doing until he died, which was in, uh, five years later. Um, he just was not able to cope with fame, among other things. Few can, but he was you know, almost uniquely least qualified to do it. Um, so that's sort of you know where the beat scene touches, um, right. touches and, and, the, the hippie scene. And, at, at those uh, acid tests, um, Bill Graham was at an early one, and I remember from his autobiography when he's driving back to his first acid test and he sees a line around the corner and he looks maniacally at the guy in the back of his motorcycle and says, this is the business of the future. So, yeah, um, I don't want um, to be all smarty pants on you, but let me correct you because it's oh, please. Yeah. not quite correct. Um, <laughs> what you, the story you're telling, which is quite accurate, is yeah. it was not a, an acid test. It was a benefit for the mind troupe that he threw in uh, on November sixth. Sorry, I've, I've been living with this stuff for so long that you know I think I remember its dates better than I remember my own. <laughs> so this is right at the you know right at the beginning. The, the acid tests were later that month and in through till the end of January, so they had they haven't quite started yet. Um, this was the first sort of rock and roll event that he'd ever seen, and it, it, it featured the the airplane which had been playing for all of six months, which he knew about only because they rehearsed in the building in the Mime Troop's loft. Uh, and he was working for the Mime Troop. Um, so this went on, and then the second Mime Troop benefit, I might add, was in December, and it was the great, you know, the, and the, the Grateful Dead showed up. Of course, they had been the Warlocks when, when Graham had hired them, and he didn't like the name Grateful Dead. Um, and they got into a big fight about it, which was not the last fight that they would have between the Grateful Dead and Bill Graham. Um, and um, and uh, Bill uh, finally put up, uh, they, they had a, this is early days and fairly primitive, they had a chalkboard on the side of the, uh, of the stage that said, you know, showed who was playing. And so he put uh, the Grateful Dead, formerly the Warlocks. So he, he at least felt he'd gotten the last word in. Bill's first acid test, not that he did any acid, was the Trips Festival, where uh, because it was a much larger scale than anything else, um, and he had done these these several shows, and everyone was impressed with his energy and his competence, which he had in spades, um, and ener energy, yes, competence about things like collecting tickets, no, uh, characterized the, the pranksters. So they said, yeah, yeah, let, let's have this Bill Graham guy, um, uh, you know, do the business for, for the Trips Festival. And, and he did. And again, but that all contributed to uh, him opening the, the Fillmore and, and turning it into a you know, sort of a landmark of American rock and roll. And we should, uh, just to step back and, and to put on the, the fun, if inaccurate, conspiracy hat, it is interesting to, to to ponder that the first member of the Grateful Dead ever to be exposed to LSD, according to your book, was as early as 1962, where Robert Hunter got $140 for, for four sessions where he would take uh, psilocybin one day, LSD another, mm -hmm. uh, mescaline another, and then a combination of the four. And then... Or of the three, and and um, 
this we now know it was at a VA hospital, but but it was under the auspices of the CIA. Absolutely, it's called Project MK Ultra. Um, been very well documented, um, and you know, I have heard wilder theories. Um, one of which was that um, that uh, Owsley, who was in the Air Force um, in the middle fifties, uh, and was working at places that were extremely high security, like Edwards Air Force Base, where they did all the X-15 and all this, you know, sort of exotic uh, testing. Um, so that he, had, he required a fairly serious uh, security clearance um, and spoke Russian. What does that suggest to you? Well, I've had other people suggest, uh, you know, have their own conspiracy theories about that, including the idea that, in fact... Um, he might have been, you know, the experiment that got completely out of hand because it certainly <laughs> it was not what the CIA envisioned uh, what he ended up doing, which, of course, was making several million hits and giving half of them away and selling half of them and, and, um, and you know, starting a uh, psychedelic fire uh, in San Francisco. Let's put it this way. If it weren't for Bear... Owsley, uh, his nickname was Bear. Uh, if it was not for Bear, if it were not for Bear, um, there would not have been a San Francisco scene on the order and the scale that it was because um, there simply wasn't that much LSD around until he got busy. But boy, did he get busy. You could also maybe <laughs> elaborate and say maybe there wouldn't have been a tech boom uh, and all that other creativity that came out of San Francisco as as waves of that. I mean, There is a marvelous book that I recommend everybody read by a guy named John Markoff, M-A-R-K-O-F-F, called What the Dormouse Said. Uh, Markoff was the tech, he covered Silicon Valley for the New York Times for a long time, although he's since moved on. What the Dormouse Said is about the connection of psychedelia and Silicon Valley. Um, and there are various people, many of whom were straight as a string and, and you know, were, were giving LSD, not dosing them, but giving LSD to, to engineers, you know, these straight, straight engineers, um, electrical engineers in Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, yes, uh, I think that uh, LSD is one of those... Um, not random, but one of those completely unanticipated, um, you know, monkey wrenches that got thrown into American culture um, in way, and you know, some of it might have been intended, uh, like MK Ultra. Uh, um, it's just that the the people who were doing it didn't have a damn clue about the potential um, for what LSD and psychedelics in general um, could do with people. Um, it's, um, so yeah, the, the, it's a okay, remarkable so, story. So we know that, <laughs> that the CIA played a role, intentionally or otherwise, but in turning on this, the faucet that we speak of. And then, you know, there is this pretty amazing period, you know, I think it, was it the Trips Festival where you said everything, you know, uh, 
there wasn't a, uh, a you know shred of garbage on the ground after this festival. There there was a point when when everything w- was was kind of perfect. Um, but then later, perhaps someone else turned on a different faucet, and and the the the, the scene kind of went to crap, <laughs> you know. And I don't know if if there's ideas about you know uh, forces bringing in speed and and heroin or other kind of drugs to just kind of uh, tamp down on whatever was happening, or or if that's just you know how things go. I've. My my inclination in general in life is, for what it's worth, is um, that uh, human stupidity and greed uh, explain a great deal more than any conscious <laughs> conspiracy. Um, so, uh, for instance, the, the degradation of the hate, um, uh, I've never seen a bit of evidence that, that there was any kind of what you would call conspiracy or, or, you know, collaboration, what you saw, what happened, quite simply, was the scene in the hate went through the 1960s, uh, pardon me, through 1966, through the end of 1966, and it was maybe a thousand people. It was a small scene. It was a genuine community. People knew each other. People, by and large, treated each other well. People were experimenting with freedom, uh, you know, with LSD, sexual freedom, all kinds of freedoms, um, in in really remarkable ways, and it worked. Uh, Jerry used to say that uh, hippie economics were that you know you didn't need a lot of money as long as you kept the money circulating rapidly. You know, everybody got some, and it it, it worked, and it did. Um, and people were young enough that they, they weren't doing the, I have to have, you know, big bucks to put my kid through college. You know, if they had kids, they were one, you know, two. Um, so anyway, uh, those, those sorts of things, uh, it, it, it did work. But what happened was it worked so well that they decided to throw a party and they called it the BN. And the BN blew the doors off because it blew their cover and... Uh, the entire, I mean, it was 25, at least 20 and probably more like 40,000 people show up out of nowhere in Golden Gate Park. And the media, you know, the media can ignore a thousand people in, in Haight-Ashbury. They mostly had, it, it was still a relatively, you know, under the radar event. And then the BN shines a spotlight. And suddenly, you know, every member of the media in America is, you know, flying people into in the, the Haight-Ashbury to do a story on the hippies. And they bec- instead of being the freaks that they referred to themselves as in 1966, now they're hippies. Uh, because the newspaper didn't like the word freak. Freak came out of African-American slang and it, was, it, was, it had an edge to it. And, and n- newspapers didn't like that. Hippie was adorable and sweet, and oh, yo, they're just hippies. Um, and it, you know, so they created hippies. Um, and what happened was, suddenly, over the course of 1967, somewhere between 75 and 100,000 people descended on the hate because it was Valhalla, it was Nirvana, it was, you know, everything good. And 
a lot of them had a, you know, a pretty good time and went home and some of them got sucked in and, and, and you know, and ended up, uh, you know, drugs, you know, drug uh, addled and, and never left and, you know, you never know. But the, the fact is that when you have suddenly, and these are very different, somewhat different people um, from the people that had sort of established the hate. The ones who did that were people who were well into their 20s. They were all working at something. Um, they were, you know, they had a fairly clear idea of who they were and, and what they wanted in life. The people who showed up from, you know, eight, after, you know, post being were teens into their early 20s. They didn't have so much of an idea of what they wanted, except that they they didn't want Omaha anymore, you know? They didn't want their hometown and the boredom and the whatnot. Um, and so they, you know, okay, we're going to go to San Francisco and find something more interesting. But they did not have the internal resources, financial or otherwise, skills, emotional skills, the way you cope. Um, so they were vulnerable. They were vulnerable to being preyed on. Well... You know, nature abhors a vacuum. When there's a big gaggle of, of people with victims stamped, stamped on their forehead, um, the, the exploiters will move in. Uh, and the end result was that people came around and um, they didn't have access to LSD anymore because uh, Owsley was, was, say, was getting, was getting arrested. So they sold them speed, you know? And these were young people who thought, well, you know, all the everything my parents ever told me about drugs was was a lie. I know that. I know that pot doesn't hurt you, for instance. Um, so I'll you know I'll try this, um, and etc. And very swiftly, uh, things went downhill, and they went downhill because, as I say, for just for starters, if you overload any environment, um, you you got a problem. You know, any environment can support only so much life. Um, and and uh, the hate got seriously overloaded. So the end result was a degradation of the environment. And it certainly did happen. But I wouldn't necessarily blame it on... It was the forces of history. I don't, I don't think it was any kind of conspiracy. And, and the Grateful Dead, just being so of their time, I mean, they were literally living at the... I think, I mean, you can correct me since my, I'm not great with literal things, but they were living at the corner of Haight and Ashbury. They've got uh, Bob Weir at one point living upstairs with a, a raving Dean, uh, uh, I was going to say Dean Moriarty, Neil, Neil Cassidy. And, uh -huh. and they've got, um, and they've got Osley uh, making or living with them at the time that he was manufacturing acid. So they're, they're like, it, it, the whole story uh, of that time is, uh, it, you know, and then and then the tour buses are st are are actually making a stop by their house uh, once the scene gets overdone. Yeah. So they're uh, yeah. starting in April of '67. Yes, you'd hear they they'd wake up at you know the crack of dawn somewhere around 11 a.m. Um, actually, Jerry got up at six and started playing, but that's another story. Um, and uh, and. Uh, and literally, you'd hear, and on your left is the great home of the Grateful Dead, notorious rock and roll band, blah, 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 blah. Just <laughs> what you want to hear. Um, uh, 
you know, uh, truly absurd. And that's, that's, of course, when they started thinking about, well, you know, maybe it's time to get out of here. Um, and by the end of the, in, in the end of the year, after they got busted, they said, now it's time to get out of here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all that happened. Owsley, by the way, uh, did, not, uh, did not live with the band. Um, oh, okay. He, he, uh, except down in Los Angeles for about a month, a uh, month or two. Um, he was certainly, he was their sound guy and he, his money helped finance some of the early, you know, early, earliest stages of their, of their trip, but not, um, he, he had his own place. He, you know, Owsley was the kind of guy that wanted, uh, to be in charge at all, at all times, which meant he had to have his own place. Got it. I mean, maybe you could talk a little more about that absurd (laughs) relationship with him. I mean, just well, the fact that he only had them eating exclusively meat and that, <laughs> this yeah, kind of thing. I, I was his very extreme personality. I, uh, meaning no disrespect to him because I think he's uh, an important person, um, I flashed on a description of um, Asperger syndrome um, as possibly... Uh, saying something about him. Asperger's syndrome is on the autism scale. Um, and uh, the high-functioning end of the autism scale. And um, it involves people who are uh, frequently, um, uh, you know, brilliant. Um, and I'm pulling a blank on the word uh, that I'm looking for, but uh, um, that, that, oh, savants. That, mm-hmm. that simply, um, that simply, you know, can, did you ever read the the girl with the dragon tattoo? Um, no. Well, it's a, it's a terrific book. And anyway, she the, this this the the heroine of that the, uh, the that series um, um, is uh, is Asperger syndrome, and she she can read a whole page at a, at a glance. Uh, I'm not saying Bear could do that, but he was clearly very 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 smart. Um, his ability uh, to to pay attention to the feelings of another person and to uh, and to relate to other people was, you know, was definitely uh, not his strong point. Um, uh, at any rate, he, what happened was that, that he uh, had started making LSD and, and uh, uh, eventually, connect, you know, logically enough, connected with the Grateful Dead. And, um, and uh, his first real encounter with them was at the Mirror Beach Acid Test in which he sensed correctly that they were tremendously powerful, but it freaked him out. It and whatever, you know, whatever else was going on that day. He sort of, he crashed his car and he spent a large part of the night um, because he was terribly uncomfortable. So he did, I guess, whether it was conscious or not, decided to get everybody else uncomfortable by sitting on this chair and squeaking, forcing it, it was a metal chair, squeaking on the floor. Um, and for whether the sound soothed him or whatever, um, it certainly didn't do anything for the people around him. Um, but the, the fact is that, that you know, they sort of freaked him out and, and he wanted, he was, you know, anything that he didn't, that, that you know, could challenge him um, was exactly what he was going to investigate and, and learn and understand. And so... He falls in with the Grateful Dead at that point, and, and um, 
Phil Lesh invites him to be the manager, and he says, you know, that's just not the kind of thing I would want to do. But he had worked in TV stations and radio stations as an engineer, and he said, but I, I could, you know, I would definitely be your sound engineer. So he took his home stereo system, which was radically better than anything they had, um, and, but it was unfortunately not very practical. Um, um, it was, it was a, a classic example of, of Bear that, that, you know, he had this, the solution except it didn't really fit the problem uh, because um, it was incredibly he- heavy and, and, and delicate and, and you couldn't move it around. And, you know, they were a working rock and roll band. Um, so it, on, on its good days, it might sound better than anything that, uh, you know, at, in those days a band could travel with. Um, it, you know, it really wasn't the, the right answer. I'm going to interrupt myself, as I frequently do, and tell you my, my first encounter with Bear, uh, which is, I, th- I always thought was, you know, extremely revealing of who he was, and, um, and uh, will tell you a lot. And that is, uh, 1981, um, Mickey Hart, and this was after the making of uh, Apocalypse Now, and, during which Mickey Hart had uh, recorded... Uh, percussion, a uh, percussion orchestra, um, for uh, one part of the uh, of the soundtrack of that movie, and they did two live shows at Marin Vets Auditorium in San Francisco in uh, Marin County, uh, and Bear mixed, and I came in early uh, on the first day, and Bear had. Uh, there was a table out in the out in the audience where he was going to mix, and um, Bear was running late as he always did, and uh, it, it was actually getting to the point where Phil, who's not somebody you generally ignore, or, or I should say that you generally ignore him at your peril, um, would um, was you know getting impatient uh, and sort of yelling to Bear to like you know can we get this sound check started. And Bear was, he had a piece of cloth that he wanted to cover the table with before he put the soundboard down on top of it. Now, this piece of cloth had nothing whatsoever to do with his work, right? I mean, except aesthetic. Um, it was, it was going to be covered by the soundboard. It, you know, it had no function except that he wanted to do this. And he's twitching it and touching it and moving it and adjusting it. This goes on for several minutes. I'm sort of getting fascinated now uh, because he, you know, he has to have it just, it's kind of OCD. I mean, it's clearly, um, he's he's messing with it to get it just exactly right, even though it's meaningless. Uh, And at the same time, Phil's yelling at him. (laughs) And I'm sort of sitting there going, wow, I mean, I know I wasn't around in the old days, but from what I've read, I didn't miss anything. Here it is, right in front of me. <laughs> and 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 I was if I say so, I was right. I mean he 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 was brilliant and at the same time he could, you know, sort of ignore the practical priorities of the entire rest of the group because he was only somewhat in touch with the rest of the group. 
And he was also, he was bankrolling them for a while. I mean, they were just kind of... In, in the earliest days, yeah, that didn't last very long. So one thing that I found really fascinating is that, you know, Phil, you quote Phil as saying that people kind of worshipped Jerry, like they would, they, would, they would sit at his feet. Uh, and, and this was before he was famous at all. So there was, there's something about Jerry that, that, um, that people gravitated to. Could you Absolutely. talk a little bit? Yeah, what, what was going on there? Was it his rap? Well, let, me, was it just let, me, was a f- let me give you an even more interesting sample. Okay. The, where Phil talks about that was in, in the era of the early 60s, you know, long before Grateful Dead, uh, when he first met Jerry. And as he said, he, he, at first he was a little dubious about Jerry because everybody around him was always like, you know. So not that he played it, Jer- that Jerry played it, not that he ever tried to, like, dominate everybody. People had a tendency for the simple reason that it was fun and it felt right and to just sort of follow him around and listen to him because his rap, it, it was always, you know, his, his rap was always... You know, the best. It was funny, interesting, insightful, intelligent, well-read uh, for a guy who was a high school dropout. Um, but um, uh, I've got this. Uh, I had the great privilege and joy of helping uh, produce a five LP set of uh, Jerry. It's called, it's called Before the Dead, and it's Jerry's bluegrass and, and folk playing uh, in the period from 61 to 64. Wow. Um, and with the, you know, Warlocks starting in 65, early 65. And uh, a lot of fun. And the most, in some ways, amazing piece of music was um, a recording. He had a little duet, a duo, pardon me, duo with a hunter called Bob and Jerry. Bob sang, Jerry pl- sang and played guitar. You know, they played, they did folk songs. Um, and this was like when he, he got out of the army, believe it or not, he was in the army. Um, and fortunately, the army came to its senses and said, Mr. Garcia, would you like to leave? And he said, I sure would. Um, and uh, as he said, he, he, was, he had this duty at um, Fort... Um, at the Presidio in San Francisco, which is like the, the softest, it's the best duty in the army. I mean, it's beautiful, and it's this beautiful city, and you know, people loved the, working at the Presidio. And Jerry was just a screw-up, and, and the, um, the, uh, his, and the, but it was one of those things where better than, you know, rather than cause waves, you just got rid of people like that because they, you know, they'd make you look bad. So the commanding officer got rid of him. Uh, so in about January of 61, Jerry lands in Palo Alto. He's hanging out in Palo Alto, where very quickly, within a week, he meets uh, Robert Hunter and uh, Alan Trist, who would later go on to run Ice Nine for forever, and uh, the Grateful Dead's music publishing, and, and be part of the Grateful Dead family in general. Um, and a lady, a young lady named Barbara Meyer, uh, otherwise known as Bridget, and Bridget was then 15 when they met, and on her 16th birthday, which was in May of 61, 
she asked Bob and Jerry to play. And what I didn't know until finally somebody pointed it out to me, and I went, really? Because I'd known Bridget for a very long time, and I'd never bothered to ask her, by the way, do you have any tapes? Um, but a tape-collecting friend of mine said, yeah, she did. And sure enough, she had a tape of Bob and Jerry playing. So this is 1961. Jerry's been playing acoustic guitar for maybe a year. He'd started with electric. Um, he, you know, he's still a moderately crude guitar player. He's certainly not finished. Um, and yet, if you listen to that record and listen to those songs, you can hear him moving the audience. You can hear the way the audience listens to him and, and, and Hunter. But Jerry's the, the, uh, the extrovert and, and it's remarkable. And he is 19 years old. Is he 19 yet? Might have even been still 18. Um, and yeah, he was 18. He was 18, he was an 18 year old kid and he had charisma. He had this something that interested other people. And it lasted till the day he died. Even, even at his worst, at his most, you know, depressed and, and sad, um, he, he, um, he had this remarkable ability to, uh, to command, lo- as it were, to command loyalty. If that, that, that's a... I think I think that came out of watching Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> he didn't command anything, you know. He simply he was a magnetic personality, and people glommed onto him. Simple, and always did. Um, and and it what you know, you read about other rock and roll bands where there's there's great conflict and and um, and and there was conflict in the Grateful Dead. They were human, but 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 um, the big conflicts, like for instance were always over money, right? Who got to write the songs? And Jerry spent the history of the Grateful Dead hammering Weir to write more songs because he didn't want to do it all himself, even though the bulk of the, the songs would end up being him because they were the best songs until Built to Last when the best songs were Brent's. So Brent got four songs. He, he could take... He, he certainly had... It could be vain, but he took his ego out of questions of music um, and so that it wasn't you know, oh, well we can't use that because my, my solo isn't big enough it was always, you know, what's the best music we got um, and you know, that was sort of part of his charisma that there was a sense of justice in there and wisdom with, and better still, wisdom he really was he had wisdom um, except about himself, you know if he'd, if he'd had the same wisdom that he, that he brought to his relationships with other people to himself, uh, he'd still be with us. But don't get me started. Wow. You know, so a couple of things came to mind as, as you were speaking. What, one about your description of him moving the audience at age 19. And I've always felt when, uh, you know, kind of choppy jazz musicians couldn't quite understand the appeal of the dead. I would, I would try to explain that when Jerry sang about a cowboy, he would become a cowboy, you know, and, and, and that there was something, you know, he would just invoke the, 
the uh, emotion a hundred percent and the story and and the you know and and that actually leads to how Robert Hunter's lyrics kind of trace into the the earth of San Francisco and, and that history there. Um, but also, I found it fascinating how you described how Jerry Jerry was not upset about a show that didn't go great because he didn't consider them performers. He, he considered the band uh, something more honest than that. Absolutely. Um, the Grateful Dead, okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, uh, one other aspect of, of the acid test. So let me, let, me, let me tell you about Jerry and, and the audience. Um, the, and the answer is yes. Uh, he, he, he had, among other things, he had a very expressive voice. But during the acid tests, the Grateful Dead spent a couple of months in which they experienced something that's absolutely unique in music history. No other band has ever quite experienced this. And that is this. At the acid tests, they were not the show. Everybody in the room was the show. If they chose to play, and they didn't always, they were the soundtrack. And that created... and when you're doing heavy psychedelics, you know, month, at least week after week for a couple of months, and after, but um, it imprints heavily that what they got, got out of that was, among other things, is that instead of the, the traditional relationship between a musician and an audience, even like the coolest jazz audience, is... I have the skills, I have the genius, I'm going to be up here, I'm going to do my thing, and you're going to applaud me um, and, and, you know, um, uh, give me something, leaving aside money, uh, give me something in terms of uh, respect because, you know, I'm up here and I'm, I'm an artist. Um, the Grateful Dead, contrarily, had the, uh, you know, the, the notion that the audience were their partners and that they were on a quest. And they were on a quest to see how high they could get, how cool they could be, how, whatever, how they could make art together. Um, I just ran a... <laughs> um, long story short, but I had to reread a fragment, uh, um, a little chunk of my Grateful Dead book, and there's a, uh, there was a quote I completely had forgotten when the Grateful Dead are talking about themselves, and um, I, I may not have this precisely right, but it's to the effect that, um, that Jerry says, uh, the Grateful Dead is like a ham radio set. Um, you put it together, you know, uh, with, with the audience, you know, you put it together, and Bobby chimes in, yeah, and, you know, it might not always work right, but, you know, we're in it together. Um, and that's not quite the right quote, but, but it gives you the idea, which is simply that there was a level of audience participation, at least psychically, um, that is, um, you know, phenomenal. Um, and and that, that's, that made what was going on in the show uh, very different. And I interviewed Melvin Seals, who was 
talking about when he first started playing with um, with uh, Jerry and um, and John Kahn in, in the JGB, which he ended up doing for fifteen years. And he was a um, you know a highly trained professional gospel musician and an R and B musician. And as he said, you know. Um, we had charts and we knew, you know, and, you know, you hit on this note. And he said, and I was like really astonished when they didn't. Um, and it was sloppy. He said, but what was going on was the relationship to the audience was something I'd never seen before. Uh, and it was, you know, it was truly amazing. And, you know, so yeah, that's, that's the, the, the critics who, 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 you know, deride, oh, it's noodling. Um, don't, um, they simply, you know, they don't get it, which is okay. Not everybody has to get it. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, at one point it seemed like too many people were getting it, and that's why we couldn't play shows, because we had too many people coming to the show. Um, but um, that, that, you know, all of that is, is um, it's, it's got to be measured, it's got to be um, evaluated by different rules than, you know, a crisp, flawless, um, you know, performance. Pop show, yeah. So, Pop I mean, even, even in the, like, I, I was astounded to see, to be, to confirm what I suspected, which was that even when they were playing stadium shows in the 80s and 90s, it was, uh, they still didn't have a set list prepared. Nope. Nope, the only time they ever had a set list uh, was for about six months with uh, Vince Welnick when Vince took over. He, he was, you know, you've you got to give me a set list. Oh, all right. So they wrote, they whipped up a set list. Um, and then after about six months, they, they took away his training wheels and said, you're so, on your own. And, and it was this kind of, in, in your sense, was it this genuineness that was the thing that made them just become this like mega machine in 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 the in those last decade and a half you know that that just like people you know this they were like the, they were the opposite of of the every you know the 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 MTV exactly thing they were the grateful Dead did two things i mean they did a lot of things but they did two things that you can isolate um, one is they created a unique, otherwise unique in American musical history of the era, um, a combination of uh, rock tropes, which is to say, you know, electric instruments and loud amplification and song structures that uh, are fairly, you know, simple and conven- conventional, um, with real improvisation. Improvisation that hadn't been seen in America since early New Orleans music. Um, and there's a certain chunk of the population for whom this is just what they wanted. Uh, that, 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 that they wanted, uh, you know, most people go to a show and want to hear note for note the song they heard on the radio. That, that was the tradition of, of arena rock. Uh, in the 70s, um, by and large, uh, or improvisations that were within the realm of, of um, 
you know, what they, what they knew, what they were expecting. And deadheads, on the other hand, are, you know, they, they love the surprises. I, one of my vivid memories is, is uh, one time the, the Grateful Dead came out, of a, came out of something or other, I forget, and started, and Jerry, painfully, slowly, started leading them into a version of uh, the reggae song, Stir It Up. Mm-hmm. They'd never rehearsed it. Nobody else in the band knew it. And they didn't play it all that, you know, it wasn't fabulously. But it was like watching birth take place on stage. This song was getting born on stage. The place went bananas because it was new. Now, most people don't, you know, really don't want new. They want the familiar. So anyway, so, that, so that's half of what the Grateful Dead did, is they, they created this, this rock-jazz fusion um, that, uh, that, among other things, prized the absolutely original and the absolutely new. That's A. The B was they created, or at least under their auspices, Jerry always denied responsibility and said it was the deadheads who did it, they created a community. They created a community by focusing on the priorities. They, you know, they, we, we tried to keep our ticket prices low. We tried never to hype anything. We tried, uh, they spent unfathomable amounts of money on sound system um, that, because that was their mode of communicating with the audience. You know, the, the lights, eh, you know, until the late 80s when they just started giving Candace bigger and bigger budgets because, according to Jerry, maybe it's the lights, that's why they come. I don't know. Give her the money. <laughs> um, but uh, until then, you know, what they spent their money on was directly to benefit the audience. Plus, they spent, we spent a great deal of time trying to chain the, train the promoters and succeeding, I might add, to our specifications, which is to say to, to, to you know, to have a, um, uh, security that didn't, you know, mash people and we couldn't win on all of those. Uh, but in a lot of places, we, you know, we, we had an effect. So, so the answer is um, uh, those two things together created, or, or, or one other example, uh, by permitting taping, by uh, what, which, and what we did was in fact segregate the tapers behind the soundboard so they didn't block everybody's view. Um, but by doing that, we created this bond. Nobody really thought about it. The reason I might add that the band did this is not some marketing genius. I've, I've had people tell me I was a marketing genius because I got the band to do this. <laughs> no. Um, a, I didn't see it coming. Um, and B, it wasn't me that got the band to do it. What got the band to do it was quite simply that they were lousy cops. And the only way by the, by the early 80s to prevent taping, you know, a Sony D, uh, D5 is about the size of a sizable paperback book, which is to say it's not very big. You can't keep it out. And the only way to have kept it out would have been to ruin the ambiance of the show. So they went, fine, put, you know, put them behind the soundboard so they don't bother anybody. And what do we care? Um, the, the, audit, the record company went bananas, but of course that was a bonus for the band. You know, it's always fun to freak out your record company. Um, and uh, what happened, of course, was that that trust uh, 
cemented the audience ever tighter. Plus, two 90-minute cassettes was a far better representation of the Grateful Dead's show than any, obviously, any LP, but even a CD. You know, that's, that's, that's the right amount for a show. It's the right envelope. Um, and so, between 1980 and 1987, which was the two bookends of, of uh, years in which they did not do a studio album at a time when it was assumed that you had to do one once a year or you were dead in the business, their audience doubled or maybe tripled. Who knows? Um, so, yeah. Anyway. Wow. Those, well, those were the things... Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was a, those were the things that, that, that connected them, that made them what they were. And after that, they just kept growing. And they kept growing right through 1995. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I know your time is super short, so... Um... Maybe maybe we can continue at another time. But uh, any any like last? There's so much I want to cover, including the entire. You know, it seems like Donald Trump isn't the first to come up with the idea of ruling by dysfunction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot to okay. cover. Okay, well, that's true, um, but uh, but um, I don't know. But anyway, it's a different uh, you know, style from maybe, The Grateful Dead. At any rate, although I did meet him once through The, through the Grateful Dead. But, oh, wow. Um, well, let's finish off. I mean, you know, there, there's so much to touch on, but in case we, we don't get to continue. Um, just uh, to me, one of the heroes of the book, and maybe it's because you're a writer, you know, you really pay him great justice, is that somehow Robert Hunter, who didn't, you know, go into this as the plan, I mean, he... He is the guy that grounds all this psychedelia in in the history of San Francisco, in absolutely beautiful and non sentimental poetry, you know, and he keeps doing it. He keeps doing it all the way to you know uh, Black Muddy River. Um, so I don't know what 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 were your impre- are your impressions of 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 Robert Hunter and how that all manifests. Uh, well. Hunter was simply the you know the the, the essential missing piece for the band. Um, you know they start in '65, um, and their first so- the first songs that they wrote with their own lyrics um, are, with the exception of the other one, um, tend to be. Uh, eh. I mean, if, if you go and read. Cream, the, the lyrics to Cream Puff War, for instance, uh, I don't know about you, but they leave, they leave me less than impressed. Um, uh, Jerry, you know, and Jerry said it. He said, I, I'm a, I just take the first words that come to my mind. Um, uh, you know, uh, the idea of um, uh, the, unlimited, the Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion was kind of okay, uh, but the songs are like, eh. The lyrics, I mean, are kind of, eh. So, bit by bit, they started using some of uh, Hunter's stuff and, and all that. And then w- what really happened was, uh, in 1969, and it's fascinating because, of course, they're, they're, you know, this is their completely experimental psychedelic era. They're, you know, they're playing two-hour sh- two long sets that, you know, have, you know, four words in them. I exaggerate slightly, but I mean, you know, they they weren't they were barely doing songs per songs. They were just they were just playing, 
And um, at the same time as that was happening, uh, Hunter and his uh, girlfriend move in with Jerry and his wife. Um, and the sheer proximity, and Hunter told a story once about coming down uh, uh, to the breakfast table uh, and Garcia's there sipping coffee and playing a guitar and you know, sort of squinting at the day. And um, he hands him some lyrics and lyrics and Jerry sort of nods and says, uh, great, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to these later. And Hunter looks at him and says, listen, if you think I live here because of the charm of your, you know, the legendary charm of your personality, which trust me is greatly overrated, um, you're wrong. Let's get to work. And Jerry said, ah, good point. And, you know, and the result is American Beauty, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, um, which goes back, you know, for a number of reasons. I mean, there's, there were, Hunter was particularly influenced by Big Pink, the, the band album, but, but beyond that, he went back to where they started, which was the, you know, folk slash country slash whatnot music that they had been playing um, in terms of tone. And coincidentally, with The Working Man's Dead, it was a situation in which they simply could not possibly go on and, you know, they had done, they did their first album almost live and were sort of semi-pushed around by the, by the local engineers. And, and it's, to my mind, not such a great album. And then their second album um, was brilliant. Uh, Anthem of the Sun was, was absolutely brilliant, but technologically it was a little over their heads. And the third album, in the middle of it, they switched to 16 track, and that was technologically over their heads. And, and they were mixing it on nitrous, which is a very bad idea. Um, so the end result was they were $250,000 in debt to Warner Brothers for studio time. Um, they hadn't sold anything. It was a miracle that they were still on Warner Brothers, for that matter. And what happened was that, uh, that um, they produced this music, and... The only, not, only, not only did they not have any money, but the only sensible way, the only aesthetically appropriate way to record it was, you know, plain and simple. Uh, a la, as they said, as uh, Jerry would later say, kind of like the Bakersfield sound of Buck Owens. And they did. And, you know, it came out as Working Man's Dead. And one of the, one of the best stories of all their whole history um, about the recording and, and all that was uh, Joe Smith telling the story of getting the cassette, the first cassette of Working Man's Dead and putting it in and thinking, you know, I mean, this is, he's, he's bet his career to some extent on the Grateful Dead and they're, you know, they're, they're and obviously interesting. <laughs> and, and at that point, you know, commercially, they're zero and, and uh, you know, they, they can't tour, they're barely touring. Uh, outside of San Francisco and New York, um, and uh, uh, they're really just getting started, you know, across the country. And he puts in the and he's he's expecting you know Anthem of the Sun Part Three, and he puts it in, and he starts hearing songs with harmonies, and the kind of thing that people would you know really accessible. Um, and he literally was <laughs> running down the, the corridor of the Warner Brothers building going, the Grateful Dead have recorded an album, a regular album. 
um, that happens to be incredibly good. And then coincidentally, you had uh, what was then called freeform radio um, that was willing to, more than happy to play this kind of material. And, you know, that's sort of the turning point in their story. They became commercially viable. I don't know how much longer um, they could have stayed together as a band uh, just playing San Francisco and, and you know, the Fillmore East um, and Boston. You know, it was, that was about it. So uh, business should not make all the decisions, but, you know, if you can't, you know, if you can't pay the electricity bill, you're going to have a hard time as a rock and roll band. Yeah, well, that's something I'm sure you, you know from the, the inside, you know, all the mechanics and the economics that, that the people in the, in the, in the seats are, are less aware of. Um, yeah, you know, well, you've got to have practicalities. You know, part of the reason, part, part of the reason this is so compelling is as a book is that you are very honest <laughs> um you know and and it's uh you know you don't try to make anybody seem heroic um more than they they might be you know and you, you show the the what you call the casual sexism and the uh you know all, all the downsides of of actually following the Jack Kerouac model, maybe too closely, um, and I just was curious about what, how, what informed those kind of uh, those decisions, and and you know, ha, ha, you know, must take some strength and and must be a tricky decision um, to to move from a publicist to to such a. a a clear historian, you know. Um, well, that's one of the reasons why the book couldn't be written while I was working for them. Uh, I tried and and realized, you know, that it's not only the 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 time. I mean, I was working sixty, seventy hours a week, but um, the uh, the mindset was just wrong, um, and so I set it aside and I kept a little notebook. And when somebody said something funny, I I um, I checked it out. I mean, I wrote it down, and you know, eventually, I used it. I used a lot of it, um, but um, how do I put this? Um, the, the 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 important thing was, I knew I had utter confidence that uh, these were not guys with conventional egos. I mean, they're human beings, and they have egos, but. Um, they, somebody stopped me after the book came out and said, boy, you, you were really tough on Kreutzmann. And, um, and I, I, I said, oh, was I? Because, you know, he's a rambunctious personality and I, I, uh, I um, was, I think, honest in, in, um, in uh, depicting it. And when... Um, uh, shortly after that, uh, I pointed out to them that one of the blurbs on the back of the book is from Bill Kreutzmann saying, the reason I like this book is it's honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, um, that was the, I mean, that's the only way it could, it could be done. Um, um, people asked me if I lied much as a, a publicist, and I said, why would I have to lie? 
the truth of the Grateful Dead was much stranger than any, you know, than any lie I could make up. Um, and, you know, I, I kept certain secrets, yes, um, but that's, you know, every publicist does that. But, um, you know, it was, it, it's one of the great American stories, and, and uh, I, I, I didn't, and I like to think that I didn't screw it up too badly. Hmm. Well, yeah, I learned a lot, and um, yeah, great, great chat with you, Dennis. Thanks for the book. I look forward to the to uh, your Kerouac book and this other. The, the other one has got is coming out. The the one with the uh, about the no, on Highway sixty one came out three or four years ago. Oh, okay, it even great. won a, it even won a prize. So you know, All right. it's the first time I ever won a prize. So <laughs> cool. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. 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 Great chatting with you. Um, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, give me a couple of weeks and call me up and we'll schedule another. Awesome. If you want. Yeah, love to. All right. Okay. Enjoy. All right. Peace. Take care.